All right, if you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're going to use one of the Bibles that we provided for you, uh, there in the rows, it'll be on page 553. Uh, we're going to start our series this morning in chapter 1, of course. So the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of background on the book. So some people have called the book of Ecclesiastes the most philosophical book in the Old Testament. It is a book that appears both hopelessly pessimistic on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's found in the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's a book that crept into American culture in the 1960s. Perhaps many of you know the song by the birds, Turn, Turn, Turn. Anyone know that? To every season, turn, turn, turn. There is a season to, let me hit that again, okay? I totally blew the lyrics on this very first try. Let me, let me try that again. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And every purpose under heaven, there is a time. So you know that verse, even though I can't remember the lyrics, and I'm certainly, I'm certainly not going to sing it for you this morning. I'm sorry, okay? I'm, I'm a rapper, not a singer. So... You can try, try maybe uh, another time. Uh, the book is, the book, we think about that text. We even sang some of the lyrics this morning in the song, For Your Glory. But, but the, the, what is the book of Ecclesiastes about? Check this out. The book of Ecclesiastes is about a pilgrim who becomes a preacher. There, he's a pilgrim because he is on this journey in life and he is searching. He is trying to find meaning and ultimate purpose and satisfaction in life. That's his quest. And his quest, his journey, is probably not much different than our own, is it not? This is why we want to walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, because if, if we look at the world around us, 21st century America, we can see people around us. We can look in, our, in, the, in the mirror of our lives, and we can see that we're searching for meaning and satisfaction. We're looking for that which, which will help us make sense of the world around us. And this is the journey of the preacher here in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is a book that asks and answers the question, what is the point of it all? And so this morning, we're going to, to open up chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to see in the, the first 11 verses a particular uh, truth, and, and, then, and, then, and then we'll close our time with verses 12 through 18. But, but the overarching point of, of Ecclesiastes, and this is what this first chapter unpacks for us, is this, that, that every pursuit on the journey of life, every pursuit is pointless apart from God and His will for our lives. And so let's read these first three verses together as they really set the tone for the entire book of Ecclesiastes. This is how the book begins. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun. So, so think about this. In, in these first three verses, we have 
the beginning of what amounts to the prologue of the book in the first 11 verses of chapter 1. I believe these first 11 verses are written by a frame narrator who, who, who opens the book in the first 11 verses and then in 12, chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, closes it with this prologue. And sandwiched in between those two uh, uh, frames, you have the words of this person we find in, in verse 1, the preacher his autobiographical account of his search for meaning and purpose and satisfaction in life. And so, so we're going to see how these first three verses really set the tone for everything that's going to follow. They introduce us first to the preacher. We find that we're going to be exposed to the words of the preacher. Now, some translations will say the teacher. Literally, you may have a footnote, footnote in your Bible. Literally, it means one who gathers or assembles. So, so this, this preacher is one who is gathering people to listen to his voice of wisdom. We could probably get away with calling him the professor. Although maybe some students have enough of professors these days, and so we're just going to stick with the preacher since uh, that's how the ESV translates it. But, but he is also then called the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, those of us familiar with the Old Testament may automatically think, hey, this has got to be Solomon here. And when we read the first few chapters, we would probably be quick to draw that conclusion because what he is going to recount sounds a lot like Solomon's life. But I lean toward, okay, this isn't like 100% certainty here, but I lean toward this preacher being a super Solomon. Someone that the, the, the frame narrator certainly has Solomon in mind, but someone who, who, who actually exceeds Solomon in his wisdom and his experiences in life. And I get there because of a few of the details in the text, as well as a linguistic analysis of the book, but, but you, just you can kind of forget all of that because whether it's Solomon, whether it's a super Solomon, it doesn't change the message of the book as a whole. And that's what we're after here as we trek through this series. So this preacher is a wise teacher who's asking the huge questions of life. Is there any meaning? What are we here for? What's the point of it all? And verse 2 provides his assessment of the situation. Check it out again. What does he say? He says, vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. These words form the, the shocking thesis of the book. He uses the most extreme words to communicate what he is seeing and perceiving about life and all of these pursuits under the sun, as he calls it. He's going to say, look, it's all empty. It's all futile. It's all pointless. This is what the, the Hebrew word, okay? I'm not going to give a ton of Hebrew as we go through the series, but, but this is a very important word. It shows up over 30 times. It's the Hebrew word hevel. And you say, oh, what does that mean? Well, this is really cool. You can almost see the wisdom of the preacher in, in the word that he chooses to be the, the, the keystone of the whole book. Why? Because it's a, it's a word. It's a symbolic word. Literally, it means mist or vapor. That which is ephemeral, fleeting, that which is futile, that which kind of gives this picture of, of the unreasonableness of the world around us. 
the NIV translates it meaningless. Uh, some scholars would say it needs to be stronger than that. It's like we could say absurd. Absurdity of absurdities. Everything, everything is absolutely absurd. So he chooses this word that's loaded with meaning, depending on the context, can, can really give us so many different pictures of pursuing meaning and satisfaction in this life apart from God. And so this is his assessment of life. It's vanity. It's all vanity. But if this is his dilemma, and, and consequently, perhaps, our dilemma, what is, what is he after in all of this? Well, verse 3 tells us he's after the payoff. Check it out. Verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 3 proves to be the programmatic question of the book. So in other words, it is the question that will drive the rest of the book. This is his search. This is his quest to find meaning and satisfaction in life, and he is after the payoff. The word gain here uh, it refers to that which brings profit. And this is something that we can identify with, right? I mean, we all, we all want to get paid, right? But think a little deeper than just what's in your pocketbook or your wallet here. Think about the payoff of your life. All of your pursuits, all of your endeavors, all of your busyness, that that fills up your calendar day by day by day. What does it all amount to? He wants to know, what are we going to have to show for it all? Is there any payoff in the end? And he concludes that it's vanity. Everything under the sun here in this world, apart from God, it's a vain, futile, empty, absurd pursuit. When you look at the, the, bank, of, the bank account of your life, not again of, of, of pennies in, 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 your, in, in your cash, your paper, whatever you want to call it, not that kind of bank account. When you look at the bank account of your life, what is it that adds ultimate value to the bottom line? What is it? Perhaps we could find some answers to that question by looking at some of life's greatest pursuits. Maybe it's relationships and acceptance. Perhaps it's, it's the pursuit of, of pleasure however you define that, however you, you go after that. Maybe it's riches and, and material possessions. We're all chasing after something, prestige, accomplishments, titles, degree. We're all searching for meaning and satisfaction some way, somehow. We want it to have something to show for all of our pursuits in life. So this is what this super Solomon is searching for. He's after the payoff. He wants to know, where is this all going to take us? And then this last phrase in verse 3 gives us the setting of his search. He says that this is life under the sun. It is a phrase that, that, that speaks of the scope of his search. 
He searched as far and wide as you possibly could. But it also speaks to the reality that we live in in this world. This, don't miss this, this fallen world. You see, the backdrop of Ecclesiastes is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 tells us that there is a a creator king over everything that is, God. And God made a world, and he made it good. But we took our grubby little paws, and we put our hands on what God had made, and we rebelled against him. And we have been under the fall of the curse ever since. And so Ecclesiastes is an assessment of life under the sun, this fallen world that we live in. We don't have to jump to a conclusion that there is this secular, sacred divide happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's it's just a picture of of life in this this fallen world, a world that that is not uh, divorced from the presence of God, as we'll see as we trek through the book. So, So this is what he's after. And he gives us these hard words to to begin the the book. And he's going to then unpack now in verses 4 through 11. He's going to to just give us some illustrations, if you will, to make his point. Everything's futile. Everything's pointless. It doesn't all add up in the end. And this is where he goes. Check it out in verse 4. Let's let's read 4 through 7 together. He says this, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. And so what, what, the, what the preacher does here is, 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 this, is, is it's as if he has kind of constructed this museum of vanity. And he's going to walk us into four different rooms that make his point. And the first is, 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 the, is the realm of nature. He, he, he pulls from uh, the reality of, of, of the arrival of humanity and the departure of humanity. We're all born, we all die. Then he uses three analogies, uh, the sun, the wind, and the waters. And he says, look at this, this same cycle of the sun rising and setting. It never changes from generation to generation. The cycles of the wind, the cycles of the waters, it's, it's consistent. It's just unending. Nothing really changes. There's no gain to it all. And then he uh, moves on into his second exhibit in verse 8. And he makes the same point, but this time from the realm of of individual human activity. Look at verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. This verse here is is almost prophetic for what's going to follow in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because this, this preacher has eyes that are never satisfied. Just like Proverbs 27, 20 says, the eyes of man are never satisfied. And I want you to just hear me for a moment. This truth right here, the endless cycle of of never 
seeing enough, never hearing enough, never speaking enough. It sheds some light on our pursuit of that which is contrary to God in this, in this world. Th- th- think about it. This, this gives us a, a, a kind of a, 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 just a, a, a ray of light into the human heart that tells us why we are after that next toy, that next lustful look, that next possession. You name it. You fill in the blank. We're always wanting more and more and more. We have greed. We have covetousness. And why is that? It's because our eyes are never satisfied. We think that that next drink, that next hit, is going to ultimately satisfy us. But listen, what, flo- what, 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 what we find our eyes and our ears wanting flows from what's in our heart. And God made us in such a way that until we're satisfied in Jesus, our hearts will never be satisfied. And so... We need to recognize this, that these activities of speaking, seeing, and hearing are never full because the cycle never ceases. Then we find the third exhibit in verses 9 and 10. And this is, this is the area of human experience. He draws on human history here. And what does he say? He says, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before us. Okay, so, so let's just hit pause for some of you critical thinkers out there, okay? The, 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 the writer here is not uh, saying that there is no invention under the sun, okay? This is not why Benjamin Franklin was a deist and not a Christian, okay? He had some other issues with the Bible, Okay. Well, what, what this is, is, is after is, is just a general observation that all of our human experiences continue to surface every age. The, the injustices in the world, they keep popping up again and again and again. The same temptations again and again and again. Even the same good that we find. We look around and we see someone engaging in a good deed. It's not like it hasn't been done before. I mean, don't, don't think there's all that much special about you, okay? You're special to God. You're special to us. We'll come back. But, um, but it's, all, it's all been done before. And before we move past verse 10, I just, I just want to say, because we could be kind of reading this cyclical nature, human experience, human history. Is this espousing some kind of circle of life view? And, you know, there is no room in the biblical worldview for, for a circle of life, kind of reincarnation. We get multiple shots at this deal, okay? And even the book of Ecclesiastes is going to make that clear. It speaks to the finality of death over and over and over again. It speaks of God's judgment more than once. But he's making the point that the cycles of life that, that are never ending, they, they, they never really deliver ultimate, ultimate gain. And he brings this home with the most force that he can muster in verse 11 by exposing the realm of death. He, he says, do you want me to prove to you the vanity of this world? Just, just step into the realm of death. And in verse 11 here, I think that the the NIV probably translated a little bit better. 
This is what the NIV has. It says, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. So, so again, be encouraged. No one's going to remember jack about your life. The ultimate expression of the absurdity of life is this. We do all that we can do. We do the very best we can, and we should do the very best we can. But at the end of the day, at the end of our life, generations come and go, who remembers us? And then the preacher sees this and he says, yet again, it's all vanity. There's nothing ultimately left to show. And so with this prologue, the, the frame narrator, as Peter ends, says, he delivers a square blow to the chin in the first round of what will follow on the pages hereafter. And the preacher, he's summarizing the, the, the thought, the philosophy of the preacher. So now we're going to turn to the words of the preacher in verses 12 through 18, and, and he is going to basically just unleash the same kind of thought. I mean, these, these, the, the preacher is, 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 would, would get along very well with New Englanders, right? I mean, he just tells it like it is. And so let's see what he says in verses 12 through 18. Here we go. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much, much vexation, and he who increases knowledge incre increases sorrow. So here we have the, the, the preacher introducing himself as the king in Jerusalem. In verse 13, he, he, he tells us himself that he is on a quest did you see what he says? He says, I applied my heart. And in other words, he is laying it all on the line to, to find meaning and satisfaction in life. This is a wholehearted pursuit. And he says that he is, he is seeking out, he is searching out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. And as we said, as king, as this super something, he is, he is uniquely, uniquely qualified for such a quest. He had resources at his disposal that, you know, us common folk just wouldn't have access to. He was, if you will, uh, a king who, who balled hard in his day. He just got after it, seeking and searching out the answer to this question. So he's one who can sit at the end of his life and he, he can say, I've done that. I've experienced this. Been there. Done that. I've seen it all. He is at once a philosopher, an empiricist, and an experientialist. 
He, he, he uses reason and he uses what he sees and observes and he, and he uses what he's experienced in life to come to all of these conclusions. What, is, what does he say in verse 14? I've seen everything done under the sun. And this is important here. Why? Because these are not the words of someone who is just detached from reality. These are someone who is speaking from what he has tasted and seen. These are, these are the words of a man who is, is probably at the end of his rope. He's experienced it all. And his conclusion is, behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He, he even says in verse, verse 13 that, that this, this pursuit, this search for meaning is like a heavy burden on his back that God has given him. And to use another image that really complements this idea of vanity, he says, is a striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? Of course not. It would be a futile, empty, pointless effort. We can never grab the wind. And he says, searching for meaning in this life apart from God is like trying to grab the wind. So I want to point out something here. These are not the words of a pagan king. These are the words of the king of Israel. Why does that help us, Tanner? Well, Christians struggle too. I mean, he's wrestling here. And we're, we're going we're gonna to see how he wrestles. And yes, he struggles and he even doubts. And we doubt too, right? There are seasons in life where we struggle and we ask God, why? God, it doesn't all make sense. What are we to do? And so the preacher sets us a fair example. Hopefully there aren't long seasons in our life where this is the case, but if if you're there now, don't be discouraged. Hear from the preacher. I mean, go read the Psalms. There are all kinds of questions that People who really love God ask. And God, at the end of the day, is more than capable of providing all we need to continue on and carry on. So in in verses 16 through 18, he begins to tell a part of his story. In in, in, in an introductory fashion, he's going to explain more in the next chapter. He says that, that even the pursuit of wisdom is vanity and a striving after the wind. What he, what he teaches us here is that ignorance is not necessarily bliss, right? Uh, look at this. He, he says he applied his heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. He perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the more we know, and and the older you get, the more you realize this, the more we know, the greater the potential for sorrow in this life. We start to see life as it really is in this fallen world. Doesn't mean there's not joy in life. Doesn't mean that God doesn't give us all kinds of good gifts in this life as he will explain to us later. But we can assume that, hey, the more we know, the wiser we become. I mean, it's just going to keep, life's going to keep getting better and better and better. And what he's going to teach us is that that's not necessarily the case. 
and much wisdom is much sorrow and much vexation. All right, so, so students, go, don't, don't like go home today and call your parents and say, hey, the pastor at this new church told me I should just drop out of school. In much wisdom is much vexation. I think I'll, you know, toss the books in the closet and go, you know, travel the world, maybe. Um, that probably wouldn't be too wise, all right? So, so, so we're going we're gonna to dig deeper into his pursuit of wisdom in a couple of weeks. But, but I just want to say that this is only a preview of where he's going to take us. He, he, he says the pursuit of meaning and wisdom is a vain, futile, pointless pursuit. And this is a man who had seen it all. He had experienced it all. And so this preview is going to then unfold in, into just other pursuits in life. Riches and possessions, check. Women and sex, check. Food and drink, check. Work and accomplishments, check. And it's all, all of it, according to the preacher, is vanity. So you might say, Tanner, look, man, it's like, you know, almost 30 minutes of like nothing but pessimism here. You know, like why pessimism and discouragement and, and depression? Like why on earth would you have the, the judgment to choose a book like this for us to work through as a church? I mean, is this like a great way to kind of kill a great thing that God has started in the life of our church? Like no one's going to show up next week because it's so seemingly pessimistic. Well, let me say two things. Number one, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is not as pessimistic as you think. It's realistic. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real view of the fallen world that we live in. But, but number two, and more importantly, we have to read the end of the story to find what the book is really going to present. And so what I want to do is fast forward to the end of the book in chapter 12, verse 13. If you want to flip there really quick, you can, you can read these verses with me. How does, he, how does he conclude the book? How does he make sense of it all? And this is what he says, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, and with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So where can we find meaning in this life? Where can we find satisfaction? The, the, the preacher, the conclusion is going to be, it's in the fear of God, in knowing God, and, and having this reverential awe before God, who He is, and then living a life that reflects His will for us. This is where meaning and satisfaction and life is found. We're all on a journey, right? We're all chasing after that which will pay off in the end. And I believe that's why the book of Ecclesiastes is so incredibly relevant for 21st century America. The question that the, the narrator, and, and really it's a summary of what the preacher is after in verse 3 of chapter 1, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? It's very similar to the question posed by a true and better sage. If Solomon 
and this, this super Solomon, this supreme in wisdom and experience in life, then we now begin to understand the words of Jesus in Matthew 12 when he says, someone greater than Solomon is here. In Jesus, as we sang about, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. And so what does this true and better sage want to ask of us? It's the question that he asked all of his disciples. Luke 9, 25, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very soul? Does that question not sound like Ecclesiastes 1-3 just a little bit? Well, what gain is there in this life? Jesus says, well, you can gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, you're a fool, and your life truly will in the end amount to nothing. What's the context there? Verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, and I hope you'll hear these words as, as his words to you today. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would wish to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, that's the one. He'll find it. He'll save it. I believe we could almost cast the message of Ecclesiastes over the words of Jesus in Luke 9. And he says something like this. Look, you have tried all kinds of pursuit in this life. And you keep coming up empty-handed. You're just striving after the wind. So, so how about this? Why don't you follow me? Now, there's some conditions here. You have to deny yourself. You have to, to die to yourself. That's the idea of taking up a cross, okay? The cross was an instrument of execution. And it, and it sounds so, so, so radical, and it is. Jesus says, deny yourself. Die to yourself so that now you can live to me and follow me and find a whole new life, the life that you were created to live in the first place in me so that if you would lose your life forsaking the pursuits of this world, no matter what it is, so that you might find that ultimate satisfaction and meaning in life is found in me. What Jesus says in the Gospels is this, I am the point of it all. So here's the, the invitation to you. Let the, let the words of Jesus to the to woman at the well in Samaria be his words to you today. What did, what did he say to her? He, he said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whatever it is in your life that you're pursuing, I'm telling you, just, just test it and see. That was the second point that I didn't even mention in the sermon. Test and see by experience if these words are true. Jesus says, you're going to keep being thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
I want to close with the words of a, of a song from a friend of mine. I met him on a mission trip back in college. Who, well, he was in France at the time. And he, and he wrote a song about the book of Ecclesiastes. Pretty phenomenal song, I think. And this is the last verse of the song. You can, you can check it out here. What, is, what, is he, what did he say? He said, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Hear the preachers cry. He's the answer to man's need. The Son of God lived despised in the world of Adam's corrupted seed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But Jesus suffered in our place and justified many for God's praise. So when the world cries out vanity, Jesus cries, all the thirsty come to me. By his stripes we are healed. The wounded wisdom of God revealed and in Jesus our freedom from vanity is sealed. Jesus is the answer. He's the answer. He is the point of it all. Hope, I pray, that you know that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the depths of which we can never exhaust, we can never unpack, but God, by your grace, we can grasp and we can find life right here in the truth of your word. And so God, whether, whether someone here today is exploring Christianity for the first time and, and is getting weary and tired of the futile pursuits of this world and would say, I want to be satisfied, God, would you convince them that this is true, that Jesus is the answer to all of the, the longings of their heart. And Father, for, for those of us who have believed, who have life in you. God, if we're being honest, we know that we get uh, allured by the pursuits of this life just the same. And God, we need your grace to come back to Jesus day by day by day and say, Jesus, you are enough. You alone satisfy. And so God, would you make that true in our hearts as we respond to you in worship? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.